This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have David Lauder, the Washington Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times, a veteran reporter and editor who shares his insights on the current state of the 2020 presidential election. How does the rash of new state and national polls look for President Trump and Vice President Biden? I'll also talk about why I think it's essential that most, if not all, businesses are open by the fall. And now, The Nexus. David Lauder is the Los Angeles Times Washington Bureau Chief. He began writing news in Washington in 1981 and since then has covered Congress, the Supreme Court, the White House under Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and four presidential campaigns. He writes the Essential Politics newsletter for the LA Times. It's published every Friday, and it truly is essential reading. I never miss it. David Lauder, welcome to the Nexus. Well, thanks for having me. We now have an actual two-candidate matchup with President Trump and Vice President Biden. And in the last week or so, we're seeing a slew of state and national polls released. What are some key findings or themes you're noticing? Well, the the uh, key theme, I think, would be that Trump seems to be slipping a bit, uh, particularly in recent weeks. Uh if you go back as far as uh, December and the uh, impeachment uh, uh, debate, he was pretty much tied in hypothetical uh, matchups with Joe Biden. He was behind in uh, in a number of them. I mean, he was uh, rather uh, Biden was behind in a number of them. Trump was ahead. Uh, now uh, we're seeing a reversal of that. So uh, today, for example, there's a, a new poll out from uh, Suffolk University. Uh, that shows um, uh, Trump behind uh, 44 to 38. Uh, they had Trump ahead three points in December. Uh, so that's a nine-point shift since um, since then. Uh, there are a number of other polls that show a similar direction in movement and, and more or less the same magnitude, uh, whether at the state or the national level. So you just see a lot of things trending away from Trump uh, right now, and uh, that seems to be uh, roughly timed uh, to along with the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. So it would suggest that Trump's actions around uh, coronavirus have been uh, counterproductive from his standpoint. Uh, it's always a little, you know, we always have to add the caveat that uh, uh, correlation doesn't prove causation. So we don't know for sure that that's why the polls are moving, but certainly the timing would suggest that that's what's going on. If you look within the polls, you're seeing two two things that pop up in a number of polls that are problematic for uh, the president. He's still holding on to a strong lead among his core uh, conservative Republican supporters, but uh, he's losing ground uh, with independent voters who tend to be uh, and the reason they are independent. They're less uh, less strong partisans. They also tend to be people who uh, are not following the news as uh, closely uh, as partisans do. Uh, so when major events come along, they're more easily shifted. 
so he's lost ground there, and he's also lost ground in a number of surveys uh, with a group that was uh, central to his victory in 2016, uh, which are senior citizens. Uh, voters uh, 65 and older were a big source of support for uh, for Trump in his victory against Hillary Clinton. Uh, they uh, are significantly more favorable to uh, Joe Biden uh, than they were to uh, to Clinton. And that's uh, potentially a really big problem for Trump if it doesn't turn around. Yeah, I mean, I always think of senior citizens voting for Republicans. I mean, this shift to Biden has to be significant. Is there any reason that you could come up with that this might be happening? Well, there are a couple of different things that seem to be playing into it. One is simply that uh, the universe of senior citizens in 2020 is different from the universe of senior citizens in 2016. You've got people who were 61 four years ago or 65 now, and you've got people who were older in 2016 who are no longer with us. So that block of the electorate obviously changes over time. Uh, Trump did somewhat less well with people in their 50s and early 60s in the last uh, election. So simply by the change in the composition of the electorate, you've got people moving into that senior citizen group who are less favorable to Trump. So that's part of it. Uh, But that does not explain the whole thing by any means. Uh, Again, the shift seems to be taking place around the time that the coronavirus began to dominate the headlines. And what that suggests is that Trump's uh, response to the coronavirus uh, crisis has not been um, has not been good for his standing with uh, with older voters. Uh, He's uh, been very intent, particularly recently on the idea of reopening the economy that is something that might have more appeal to uh, younger voters and less appeal to retirees, uh, particularly people who feel that they're at risk from uh, from the illness. Uh, he also, uh, in general, tends to not do as well when the spotlight is focused on him. That's been true of Trump uh, really ever since he uh, got into the uh, presidential uh, uh, arena, when he can keep the spotlight focused on his opponent, he does better. And when the spotlight is focused entirely on him, uh, his uh, some of his personal qualities are things that turn a certain number of voters off. And in this particular case, there's some evidence that his uh, demeanor um, and his um, uh, approach to the crisis uh is uh, particularly alienating to older voters who maybe remember how other presidents handled crises, uh, who have a broader range of um, comparisons that they can match him up to. Uh, When I spoke with both Democratic and Republican pollsters last week uh, to go over the polls, that was this point that people in both parties stressed that for a lot of older voters, uh, when you talk to people in focus groups and things like that, uh, you get uh, this recurrent sense that, well, he's just not presidential. And when times are good, that doesn't necessarily bother people. But when times are bad, that uh, aspect of his personality becomes more salient. And 
uh, it seems to be hurting him again, particularly with uh, older voters. Yeah, no, it's I, I've heard that many, many times that and, you know, there are folks who like to say the economy wasn't good for most of his term. I disagreed with that. I think the economy was actually quite good. And uh, yeah, and so there's no no question about that, that there's a shift when the economy is not going well. Uh, there is a drop off in his in his support with many sectors, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he uh, the economy was one of his really big um, cards that he could play with uh, with voters. I mean, you, you know, you ran into it was easy to find voters who would say, well, you know, I don't necessarily like the tweets. I don't like uh, some of the things he says about his opponents, but uh, the economy is going really well. And uh, why change? Well, now you don't have that second part of the sentence. So the things that people don't like uh, are uh, are much more likely to uh, uh, to come to the fore. Uh, and, uh, you know, Trump obviously will try during the six months between now and the election, and, and six months, you know, we have to say that's a long time, a lot can happen. Uh, Trump will try to refocus attention on uh, things that people might not like about Biden, rather than having all the attention be on things that people might not like about him. Uh, but it's problematic for him for a couple of reasons. Uh, re-election campaigns tend to be a referenda on the incumbent. Uh, it's rare for a re-election campaign to be a referendum on the challenger. Now, there, there are examples. Uh, the 1972 uh, Nixon McGovern uh, campaign is probably the, the best example of a of a re-election campaign that turned into a referendum on the challenger, uh, and and Nixon was very successful in disqualifying uh, McGovern in that campaign. Uh, but um, usually, that's not the case. Uh, these tend to be referenda on the uh, on the incumbent. So there's there's that. The other uh, the other problem for Trump is uh, his desire to focus attention on Biden is a war with his desire to keep the spotlight on himself. He likes to be the center of attention. <laughs> and um, as much as his political advisors may say to him, Mr. President, it would be better for you to not be on stage. Uh, it's hard for him to resist. Uh, so we've seen over the last several days a steady stream of, of um, uh, White House officials talking to reporters anonymously, of course, uh, saying, well, you know, we would really like him to stop doing these daily briefings. And we think maybe we've convinced him to stop doing these daily briefings uh, and so on and so forth. Today, uh, the White House started out the day by saying it wouldn't be a daily briefing, but by around uh, early afternoon, they were back to saying, no, no, the president's going to do a news conference today. It's very hard for him to uh, <laughs> give up that spotlight. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it's a day-to-day -day change. But um, I've noticed in some polls, including the one you just referenced a little while ago from Suffolk University, published in USA Today, that Joe Biden has a tremendous advantage on who has more empathy. 
Does that matter? I think the president's voters would say Trump doesn't possess much empathy, but we don't care. Is empathy more appealing now? It may be. Uh, it, you know, that's a uh, that question about, you know, who which of these candidates cares most about people like me, the people like you is a um, you know, it's a perennial question that pollsters uh, like to use because it does capture something that uh, a lot of voters care about. And it may very well be that at a time when people are very unsettled, uh, that that attribute of a president uh, becomes more important to them. Uh, certainly, you know, voters in 2016 didn't you know, vote for Trump because they all of a sudden thought he was empathetic. People knew what they were getting. Uh, they just, it wasn't as important to them right then. Um, the, um, the economy was well on its way towards recovery uh, and times were relatively good. Empathy maybe took a back seat. Uh, right now, that may be more important and that... Um, that may well be playing to uh, Biden's strength. Democrats tend to do better on that question than Republicans, uh, even you know, regardless of the of the individual candidate. But among Democratic uh, candidates, Biden is particularly uh, strong on on empathy. People see him as an empathetic figure. His history of having lost his son, lost his wife, um, etc. Makes him uh, even more of a an empathetic character and someone that uh, people feel understands problems in their lives, uh, and that's been a strength of his, uh, and it's clearly a weakness of Trump's. And right now, that may matter more than it uh, typically would. Yeah, and I mean, on another um, question, a lot has been made that Biden doesn't excite young voters, yet the Harvard youth poll that came out within the last week shows a significant lead for Biden over Trump in the 18 to 29 crowd. Did something change? No, I, I, I think uh, th there are two dimensions of this. Uh, one is if you are going to vote, who are you going to vote for? And the other is, are you going to vote in the first place? Uh, it's pretty clear that most of the uh, people under the age of 30 who actually show up at the polls will not be voting for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they'll vote for a third-party candidate if there is one, some of them, but you know, most of them are going to vote for uh for the Democratic candidate, regardless of who that candidate is. And in fact, the, the Harvard poll showed that there was, uh, when they did the hypothetical matchup, which was before Bernie Sanders had um, withdrawn from the race, there was no significant difference between how Sanders did against Trump and how uh, Biden did against Trump, because it was a vote against Trump. And that um, is a very strong uh, motivating force among voters younger than 30. There's uh, even among Republicans younger than 30, there's not a lot of love for Donald Trump. Huh. And the uh, uh, percentage of, of one of the more striking findings in the in the uh, Harvard poll was the percentage of 
uh, people under 30 who felt that uh, Trump had made their lives worse. Uh, and even among Republicans, only a third said that Trump had made their lives better. Uh, so, uh, so the issue for uh, younger voters is not so much, are they going to vote for Biden versus Trump? It's, are they going to vote? And that's where um, Biden has had trouble. And that's where the excitement uh, factor comes in. Uh, he has um, uh, he's not done well with uh, younger voters in the primaries. Uh, clearly, Sanders did much better. And he has not excited um, younger voters in a way that might spur turnout. Younger voters tend not to uh, be as reliable voters as older people are. So uh, excitement uh, plays a big role in uh, in the size of the turnout, not necessarily in how that turnout ends up um, dividing up. So clearly for Biden, one thing that they need to do is figure out a way to reach younger voters uh, and, um, and get them excited. Uh, related to that, uh, is uh, a similar motivational issue with Latino voters. Uh, Latinos in the United States uh, tend to be, uh, on average, are a younger population than the uh, population as a whole. So that that Latino problem that uh, Biden has uh, and the young voter problem that he has overlap to a considerable degree. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, and We've talked a bit about, you know, national and national demographics. What are you noticing in the state polls that have been released so far? So, uh, you know, if you uh, if you take that old adage about a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, that tends to be true in in the state polls. The uh, you have a, a certain uh, watermark that. Uh, that you start out with, or what a line that you start out with. Uh, there are uh, states like Wisconsin, for example, uh, or Pennsylvania that were key battlegrounds in 2016 that are a few points more Republican than the nation as a whole. Um, and when uh, a candidate like Biden is doing better nationally, uh, you tend to see those states drifting over to the Democratic side of the line. When um, the Republican candidate is doing better nationally, you see them drifting back in the other direction. Uh, so you have that kind of uh, dynamic going on. And, and then you also have some states that just have a long-term trend in one direction or another. So Virginia, for example, has gotten considerably bluer uh, in recent election cycles um, Texas has been slowly getting, um, at least more purple, if not more blue. Uh, Ohio, on the other hand, has been getting redder. Iowa has been getting significantly redder. So, uh, so you have some states that, uh, are, have their own movement, and then you have other states that just sort of drift with the national tide. So as you, uh, as you, see Trump doing worse, uh, as we were talking about at the beginning, uh, you started to see a number of states that were battlegrounds in 2016 uh, moving over to the Democratic side of the ledger. So we've had uh, 
a bunch of polls, uh, like the uh, Fox News uh, polls that came out um, uh, last week that uh, showed uh, Biden uh, ahead of Trump in Michigan, uh, Biden ahead of Trump in Pennsylvania, uh, Biden and Trump uh, in a very tight race with, with Biden having a slight lead within the margin of error in Florida. Uh, those are all very troubling findings for um, uh, for the president. Those are states, particularly Florida, that uh, Trump absolutely needs to win. Uh, the uh, there was another uh, poll out um, uh, today uh, from Ohio showing uh, that state more or less a toss up. Uh, so again, that's one that. Uh, Trump really should be able to count on because Ohio has become a more of a red state in the uh, last couple of election cycles. So if Trump's not winning solidly there, you can figure he's in considerable trouble in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, so, so you've seen a number of those swing states move over to the Democratic column uh, and some states that should be more or less solidly in the Republican column that are beginning to move into swing territory. Uh, and for, um, for the president's, um, campaign that those are, um, those are problems. Uh, now, again, as I said before, that can happen in six months. Uh, think how much has happened just in the last six months. Hmm. Uh, so all, all of this could change, but as we sit here right now, uh, you know, you could see the makings of a significant uh, electoral college win uh, for Joe Biden starting to uh, develop if these trends hold up. But I have to ask this because this is the way I know a lot of listeners are probably thinking, are these state polls reliable as far as you would know? I mean, I know that was the wrap on them last time, and I have tried to explain to people that the national polls were very accurate, but the state polls were faulty in a lot of places, and they were accurate in a lot of places. I mean, the problems we saw in 2016 with polling, do you have any sense that they've been fixed? Well, we won't know, of course, until we uh, see the 2020 results. Right. <laughs> uh, I think uh, pollsters have uh, tried to identify things that they did uh, that didn't work. In uh, in 2016, one of the big things that didn't work uh, for a number of polls was that they uh, didn't accurately weight their samples to uh, education levels. And uh, that hadn't been a problem before because there wasn't a huge partisan divide along lines of education. But uh, as we saw in 2016, Trump drew very heavily from non-college educated white voters. So if you had too many college educated white voters in your sample, your sample was going to be wrong. Uh, so a lot of uh, pollsters have, who had not waited for education in the past are doing that now, uh, that should all other things being equal, uh, make their polls more accurate this time around. All other things are never equal. So there may be some other problem that could be um, could be pushing the polls off kilter in one direction or the other. It's not necessarily in a pro-Trump direction. It could be in an anti-Trump direction. Uh, so, um, so we'll have to see. 
Um, all that being said, though, you know, most of the state polls were um, were accurate, at least within their margins of error. Uh, you know, they uh, they showed tight races in states where the races were tight. Uh, the um, there was a tendency of a lot of people, myself included, so you know, I'll plead guilty on this too. Uh, to look at polls that showed Clinton with a narrow lead or a lead within the margin of error and uh, to assume that it was more solid than it was. Uh, and that led a lot of people to be very surprised on election night. Yeah, of course. And uh, when you think about it, um, are there parallels to previous elections that you can think of Obviously, neither of us lived back then, but I often wonder if the 1932 election between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt is an apt parallel, especially if we're actually heading to a complete economic collapse. Is is that even a possibility to draw a, a comparison to, or, or are we so far removed from days like that that this is just a completely different realm? It's hard to know. Uh, which is not a very satisfactory answer, I know. Uh, but uh, certainly in terms of economic disruption, it's hard to think of an election since 1932 in which we uh, had levels of unemployment, for example, that we're uh, experiencing right now. Um, it's obviously a very different cause. Uh, you know, in 1932, the economy was collapsing uh, because of problems that were intrinsic to the economy, whereas in this uh, election cycle, we're having an economy that's collapsing because of a reason that's extrinsic, the uh, pandemic. And we don't really know how voters are going to view that. But, um, you know, certainly for any incumbent, you, um, incumbents take credit when things are good and take blame when things are bad. And, and uh, it may be unfair in either direction, but that's sort of the way it, way people uh, tend to think. Uh, so if you're an incumbent, you don't want to be running with um, uh, 20% unemployment. Uh, so to that extent, it's possible that we could uh, look back on this election and say it ended up looking a lot like 1932. Uh, Another election, though, that um, uh, this one bears some res resemblance to, uh, you have to go back um, considerably further, but the um, uh, election of 1884, uh, which for many, uh, many generations had the reputation for being the uh, dirtiest, uh, most uh, scurrilous election in um, uh, in history books between uh, James Blaine and Grover Cleveland, which was <laughs> marked, among other things, by uh, uh, a, uh, a lot of attention to whether uh, Cleveland had fathered a child out of wedlock. Uh, uh, an election that was marked by a huge amount of um, uh, personal invective and uh, uh, scandal and uh, and mudslinging, um, and um, ultimately the Democrat won. 
Um, this one, this one may end up looking somewhat like somewhat like that. Uh, although the uh, lineup of states obviously will be extremely different. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, uh, but the you know the 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 other thing that's similar to 1884 uh, and some of the other elections of that era uh, is the the deep um, uh, rigid partisanship that marked that election and that marks our current. Uh, politics as well. And that's one of the reasons why that election was so nasty, that uh, the vast majority of partisans on both sides were dug in and and knew which side they were going to vote for long before uh, the candidates um, were nominated. Uh, And they were fighting over a tiny slice of voters who were up for grabs. Uh, And both parties um, were willing to do pretty low to try to uh, get those last few voters that they needed. Uh, highly partisan elections like this, where you have two parties that are uh, closely matched, uh, lend themselves to that kind of an election. So um, it's possible that um, that we may be looking at, at something along those lines. And I'm winding up here, and I've been so thankful that David Lauder is joining me on our show. Um, what would you say, though, are, I feel like we've talked a lot about Biden's strengths. What are bright spots for the president? I mean, he's the incumbent, which always confers a built-in advantage, right? Yeah, uh, he, he is the incumbent. Uh, you got to figure if someone got elected once, they can get elected twice. Uh, voter to uh, tended before um, the economy all of a sudden started to collapse, um, they tended to see him as someone who had done a good job in uh, in managing uh, the economy. Uh, and as I said, you know, we don't know are voters going to uh, punish him because of uh, the bad economy, or are they going to um, accept the argument that that Trump has already started to make that the economic problems are uh, not his fault that uh, that they were caused by the uh, by the uh, pandemic, and that if he built the economy once, he can build rebuild it. Uh, if by September. Uh, the uh, the virus has receded in people's minds and people are more focused on how are we going to get the economy started up again, uh, Trump arguably could be in a decent position to try to uh, try to build on that um, sense that voters have that he understands the economy, that he's good for the economy. Uh, and the other uh, strong point that he has is that uh, people see him as a strong leader. Uh, they don't necessarily see him as um, empathetic, as we talked about before, and they don't necessarily see him as being honest or straightforward. Uh, but to some extent, they've discounted those um, 
uh, those attributes. They do see him as a strong leader. Uh, they don't necessarily see Biden as a strong leader. So, uh, so Trump definitely has some cards to play. And um, uh, I think, uh, as I said, if the virus has receded in people's minds, uh, he may be able to reassert uh, those advantages that he has. Uh, conversely, if in September the virus is coming back and people are worried that um, that their um, uh, that their health is in danger, then I think it's going to be difficult for him because it's one thing to say, "Well, no one could have anticipated this, and you can't blame me for not anticipating a pandemic that hit the entire world." Um, it's another thing uh, for him to say that um, no one anticipated it coming back in the fall because they're, you know, if you look at uh, polling, most voters do think it's going to come back in the fall. So if it if it does, and if he seems unprepared then, then that would be that would be pretty rough, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess what you just said sort of sparked a, a, a one. Really, last question. Um, are there any trends we might be missing, things that the media may be covering too little of that could have some impact on the election? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in, in 2016, we were uh, there was a sense that the uh, media collectively had undercovered uh, the concerns and worries of the kinds of voters uh, who had uh, voted for uh, voted for Trump um, you know rural white conservatives in particular so ever since then the media has been focusing a lot more attention on those voters um, you know I think it's possible that uh, we've now sort of swung too far in uh, in that direction, uh, and that we're uh, not um, uh, not doing an adequate job of covering uh, a trend that the the pandemic has been um, has been uh, accentuating. I think, which is that younger Americans are much more open to a larger role for government because they see their economic security as being very tenuous. Uh, you've got, you know, a generation of people and, and the Harvard Youth Poll really uh, showed this strongly who, uh, you know, their uh, formative experiences are starting with September 11th and then the uh, 2008 economic crash and now this. And just sort of one thing after another where um, where things have gone wrong and where they have ended up feeling like their um, security is at risk, both their economic security and their, um, in some cases, their physical security or their health. And, uh, and increasingly, they're open to the idea that uh, a more activist government is needed in order to... Uh, um, to uh, deal with that, and we've we've paid attention to that to the extent that it helped fuel uh, Bernie Sanders' um, primary campaign. But 
I, I think it goes broader than that. And um, I, I'm not sure that we've all adequately uh, focused on, on what that change is going to mean for the, not just for this election, but for the next couple of cycles. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, David Lauder is the Washington Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Follow him on Twitter at David Lauder. David, thank you so much for joining me in the Nexus. My pleasure. We'll do it again. And we will be right back. I'm noticing a disturbing trend. The idea that places will be closed indefinitely until there is a vaccine in place. And that vaccine could come in, oh, the fall of 2021 or 2022. Are they kidding? We can't shut down the world that long. I am firmly on board with the stay-at-home orders now, especially since this virus came unexpectedly and the government was woefully unprepared to handle it this spring. But the original idea was to give local hospitals time to mobilize and for tests to be produced for the population at large. By midsummer or fall of this year, won't those goals be accomplished? I'm hearing rumors that universities may be starting their fall semester online and possibly even doing the entire semester that way. For Pete's sake, why? Online learning was a stopgap measure as this enemy pandemic invader swooped in. But by the fall, won't we have the weaponry to keep this enemy combatant at bay? The rationale I've heard from this university end is that international students might bring the virus back to campus or people from densely populated areas like New York might infect people at campuses across the country. While I don't pretend to be a medical expert, certainly there has got to be a way to practice social distancing, test students, and trace where the virus is by September, which is more than four months away from the recording of this podcast. We are all afraid of COVID-19, but what we should not accept is authorities throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we can't do anything until we can assure coronavirus is gone. That to me is insane, and it's lazy, fearful thinking. The pendulum has swung too far to the other side now in some sectors of our social and economic sphere, saying we can't afford anyone to get infected anywhere, and therefore we will remain closed indefinitely, is a recipe for disaster. So many students live in troubled homes and going off to college is a necessary escape for them. Many don't have adequate Wi-Fi because they live in rural areas. Some are forced back into the closet by having to stay home, not to mention the priceless development they receive in the classroom and campus experience. As someone who has taught students online, I can most definitely tell you it's not the same thing, and those who claim otherwise are not being truthful. It's not just universities, but movie theaters that will remain indefinitely closed because theaters don't want to invest in tools to regulate their businesses properly. An example being they don't want to clean aggressively after every movie shown. And the same goes for concerts. Must you jam everyone possible into close quarters at every show? Of course not. I would relish the chance to watch bands perform at a comfortable remove from everyone else. I've hated people brushing into me and someone standing right in front of me with their cell phone filming the show. Give us space and let us watch our favorite performers in peace. When there's a will, there's a way. I'm just annoyed that instead of trying, so many sectors appear to be giving up for fear that someone may get sick. Coronavirus is horrible, as I've outlined from personal experience in previous podcasts. 
but we can't wait until a vaccine comes to participate in life again. What happens if a vaccine never comes? It took an awfully long time for the polio vaccine to be available, and life went on with precautions. My sense is there will be a vaccine or a drug that can greatly mitigate symptoms. After all, necessity is the mother of invention. But if that's what you're hanging on to, you may be sorely disappointed. Reopen college campuses and most everything else for that matter this fall. Let's work round the clock to ensure we are ready. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Thank you for listening. Keep yourself safe and be well. We'll see you next time. Thank you.